Rebecca Davis, good afternoon. John, I feel like I've missed some very important information. How, dare I ask no, you how did, this injury occurred? Uh, it involves an erotic dream, so I can't go into any further detail. I'm sorry. Please do not. Thanks, thanks for your sensitivity. And I know that the information I want from you, I am not going to get. But, uh, you know, I, I did speak to Kevin Bloom last week about the team of nine that is looking into the ESCOM intelligence, the first tranche of which was shared with us uh, earlier this week. And um, I know that you're working on it. Well, you've told me that you're working on it. And, and is there anything you can tell us about being part of that team? So I, too, have been given ex- extremely strict instructions not to talk about anything except in broad terms, which I will. I think this is what I want to say about that. So as you've mentioned, the ESCOM intelligence files are this sort of, um, I suppose, a dossier of information related to operations at ESCOM, but in particular to the criminality that has been happening there. Um, It is information that still needs to be largely verified while some of it is in the public domain and has been put together others other bits remain to be verified or at least you know corroborated in a way that means it can be published without legal action which is why we have to be careful but this is what i think they reveal john for years we've been told that the problems at escom are largely the result of inadequate maintenance at power stations um due to, you know, uh, the departure of various skilled executives and various sort of state capture cadre deployment reasons and the like. And this was obviously infuriating, but I, I don't know about you. I found it sort of possible to live with this, especially as someone who always prefers to attribute to incompetence rather than conspiracy, something that goes wrong. But what what is becoming clear is really that what has happened at ESCOM is far more deliberate, far more intentional than just inadequate maintenance, than people, you know, not screwing in the bolts every now and then at Madupi or whatever. And the other thing is, John, that I'm somebody who, in theory, has no problem with the idea of state-owned entities. I really don't. And especially because I've seen, for instance, what privatization of the railway system in Britain did to prices. I mean, anyone who's so opposed to SOEs should take a look at what happened there. But it also seems clear that much of what has gone wrong at ESCOM is inextricably linked to its status as an SOE. And by that, I mean the scope for bloat in in the contracts and the contracts themselves, the amount of under-scrutinized subcontracting. This is the the issue that the Zondo Commission also points to. Our procurement system is enshrined in the Constitution, and that's because it was supposed to be a key way to allow for economic trickle-down, economic development. So, you know, an SOE would contract out to a small business, which then would have a chance to make some money off government as well. And that's all good and well in theory. But what is happening in practice is now beyond doubt that all these tenders are just a recipe for corruption. The levels of corruption within that institution are astonishing, even for a battle-hardened journalist, John. And some of it is a reflection of the wider economic meltdown, I think. For instance, you know, this notion, for instance, that people at ESCOM catch wind of the fact that they're about to be retrenched and deliberately break things so that they'll have to be kept on to fix them. So it's kind of guaranteeing themselves this perpetual Sisyphean 
employment, which is kind of madly depressing if you give it more than two seconds thought. It, it suggests, the file suggests rather, that this corruption permeates every level of ESCOM, that it has for years now been used as a feeding trough by, and I really need to stress this, by every element of South African society. So it is certainly not just technicians. It is certainly not just ANC politicians. It is also very much for instance, white businessmen. That it seems that every possible sector of South African society that could avail themselves of an enrichment opportunity at ESCOM has been doing so. And I think what's maddening, John, is that I have absolutely no doubt that some of these same people would be the first to complain about load sharing without ever stopping to consider their own role in it. I hope that someday we will simply be able to publish a list of every single person who has contributed to where we are in terms of load shedding, because I, I feel so viscerally that they need, need to be shamed on a national level. Yeah, I mean, Andre Dereiter in that, that interview with Annika Larson said one billion rand a month is being lost at ESCOM. And it does appear as if his three years did see some attempt to rein that corruption in and perhaps had some success. So if you if you go back to 2005, which is when it started to to happen, and you go, all right, so it probably started a bit smaller than a billion rand a month, but then there was probably a significant seven or eight year period during the height of state capture where it was considerably more than a billion rand a month. But let's equalize it out at a billion rand a month over 18 years. You know, that is, what, $216 billion dollars which has been stolen through the operation of ESCOM. And it becomes an incredibly depressing exercise to think about how much good could have been done in terms of infrastructure, providing opportunities for people, decent sewage, streetlights, fixing potholes quicker if that 216 billion rand hadn't been stolen from ESCOM. I mean, there's no way to put a positive shine on this. It is grimly depressing. And I think my colleague Stephen Curtis was absolutely right when he wrote in Daily Maverick earlier this week that the, the most astonishing thing has been the ANC's response to this. I mean, even today we saw Enoch Godongwana, the finance minister, again piling in on Andre Dureta, saying, you know, um, we expect better from a CEO. In, in what world can this be a responsible response? To somebody who appears in all good faith to be whistleblowing on this institution. I mean, the, the message it sends is just terrifying in terms of, you know, uh, just about whistleblowers alone, but also just the lack of self, you know, introspection among the ANC, the inability to countenance the possibility that this could be correct is, is, is truly frightening, I think. And then on a much happier note, thank you very much for that Twitter thread to which you alerted me. A Miriam Merriam Webster Twitter thread. Over to you. It's gorgeous. So John and I have discussed this before. Words which lack an English translation, which is sad because in other languages they seem to be such useful concepts that you immediately think, why doesn't English have a word for that? Merriam words to the, the dictionary uh, invited people on Twitter to give their suggestions of their favorite examples of these words this week. And I have collected a few for us, John. The Japanese word, tundoku, which means to acquire books and let them pile up without reading them. I suspect you are guilty of some level of tundoku, John. The German word, kabelsalat, which means cable salad. When all your cables, your charges, tangle up together, that is kabelsalat. In Arabic, subye, a 
quiet time when you're the only one awake in the house and can enjoy a cup of coffee before the day starts. I mean, that My one is favorite just time soothing. of the day. Beautiful. Yes. The term uh, sabishi in Japanese, lonely mouth. When you're not hungry, but you eat because your mouth is lonely or you are bored. We've all been there. <laughs> Scandinavia has given us an astonishing amount of concepts related to alcohol, of which I'll just give two. Truno, the Icelandic word for really showing yourself in a long and intimate conversation with others, usually late in the evening and accompanied by alcohol, when you let people in just that little bit too deep. Kalsarikanit is the Finnish word for drinking at home in your underwear. And I really don't know what to say about the Finnish culture that they require a word, excuse me for this noise, for that exact concept. And finally, John, most people know about schadenfreude, of course, which is a German term for taking joy in another person's misfortune. But I did not know, perhaps you did, that the antonym also exists in German, which is to say Freudenfreude, which means literally finding joy in another person's joy. Isn't that lovely? I'm experiencing Freudenfreude. Freudenschade. Freudenfreude. Freudenfreude. This this is what George has been waiting for ever since I told him uh, about it uh, a couple of hours ago. And I know Charlene will want to rush out and try it straight away. The latest wellness fad, eating a cool, juicy orange while having a hot shower. Shower oranges, John. First surfaced on Reddit in 2015, there's now an entire shower orange subreddit, but it recently came to the attention of a wider audience just TikTok. This is a very simple wellness fad. You stand in a hot shower, peel and eat an orange. It suggested that you put the peel on the, the, the little shelf where you'd have your shampoo. What is the appeal, I hear you ask? I quote from one of many articles, the shower and the fruit elevate each other, which is to say the citrusy smell is enhanced the steam exaggerates the scent of the orange. The warmth, or something I did not understand, enhances the taste as well, the essential oils of the orange. I quote again, it can transform a daily task into an aromatic experience of relaxing self-care. Now, John, finally, I went on to the Reddit shower orange group to see what people were saying about shower oranges, because mostly I don't understand how this could translate into a discussion group. What really is there to say about this? I just want to read you quickly a testimonial from a shower from a, a Reddit user on this thread. Guys, I'm at the grocery store purchasing an orange for my first ever shower orange. I'm absolutely ecstatic. I can't wait to rip into it like a feral beast and enjoy every second of it. We'll report back. Follow up. Guys, it was such a delectable treat. I ran through the house butt naked to grab another. I couldn't help myself. How have I not done this before? I threw the peels at the floor with such violence. It was so therapeutic. I let the juice run everywhere without a second thought. I feel as if I have ascended into a new being. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> um, Jacques has messaged uh, Rebecca to say, you and Beck sound far too cheerful. Your optimism is disturbing. Um, but I recognize the face and I know he's with UCT, so he could be forgiven for being a little pessimistic at the moment. Jacques, I'm spending... I'm sp- all I can say yes. is get yourself an orange <laughs> uh, Well, Rebecca, the shower. Yeah, well, I'm, I am spending the weekend on a farm in Elgin, but it's an apple and pear farm. And I don't know about the ethics of taking an orange onto an apple and pear farm. 
Oh, I thought you were going to ask if you could substitute the orange for an apple or pear in the shower, and the answer is absolutely not. No, no. You will not get the same so I, the aromatic. Uh, I'm not going to have time to buy an orange before I go home and shower. So I don't know whether to, um, to, 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 to shower with an orange on an apple and pear farm or wait until I get back home on Sunday and then... I, perhaps that could be the ultimate antidote to the Sunday blues, a bit of Sunday oranges. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rebecca Davis.